You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 121. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife and conservation issues. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today's guest on the show is Zach Smith from the Natural Resources Defense Council. Zach is a senior attorney at NRDC and has been running the group's Marine Mammal Protection Project for the past 10 years. Through his work, he has become deeply involved in efforts to save the vaquita from extinction. Now, if you're tuning into the EOC podcast for the very first time, you may be wondering what a vaquita is. It's a small species of porpoise found in the northern Gulf of California and is considered to be the world's most endangered marine mammal with fewer than 30 individuals remaining on the planet. If you're a regular listener of the show, you're likely very familiar with the vaquita issue since we've been covering it extensively here on the show for the past two years and just released a new 30-minute documentary about the struggle to save this species from extinction. The film, by the way, is called Souls of the Vermilion Sea and is available for free online streaming if you go to vaquitafilm.com watch. Zach's most recent role in the fight to prevent the vaquita's extinction has been the implementation of a boycott on Mexican shrimp. Although the vast majority of shrimp fishing that goes on in Mexican waters does not impact the vaquita because it occurs outside the vaquita's range, Zach hopes that this boycott will put pressure on the Mexican government to step up enforcement of the existing regulations that are designed to protect the vaquita, including a ban on the use of all gillnets. Zach, thanks for coming on the show. Why don't you start off by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about what you do at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Sure. I'm Zach Smith. I'm a senior attorney at the Natural Resources Defense Council, NRDC, and I've been working here for about nine and a half years on marine mammal issues and our marine mammal protection project. There's a wide range of issues that we work on from the impacts of ocean noise to marine mammals to species-specific conservation efforts where our work in Vaquita Falls. And also, um, half of my time is spent directing NRDC's Wildlife Trade Initiative, which wouldn't necessarily have lent itself to this issue immediately, but when one digs into the issue and understands some of the threats that, fa- that the Vaquita face, there's an international trade element related to them as well, which, which we can get into. Um, so my background in that uh, work has also been helpful. How did you first hear about the vaquita? And I mean, what inspired you and, 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 and NRDC as an organization to, to get involved with this issue? The vaquita have been on the radar of NRDC for quite some time. We have an international program at NRDC, and within that program, there's a, a Latin America project, um, people who, who have been working um, in Mexico um, on those issues, as well as in Chile and other areas. I mean, they're U.S.-based, but, you know, working in those areas around around the world. Um, and so NRDC had been involved uh, in the formation of what had taken place in, in kind of the mid-2000s was the creation of a vaquita refuge. And, and at that time, people already knew that there was a problem for the vaquita, that that they were being threatened by bycatch from commercial fisheries. People understood that it was the shrimp fishery that was operating in the upper Gulf um, out, of, out of these small boats called pangas, you know, that might be run by you know, two or three, one, one, two, three fishermen, um, you know, going out and setting nets and then incidentally um, um, capturing uh, or entangling vaquita who would then drown in the nets um, when they're out uh, shrimping. And so the idea at the time was, well, we'll, we'll create a, a vaquita refuge. It'll be a, it's almost a shield shaped little area in the very upper Gulf. It didn't cover the entire vaquita habitat, but it was this idea that you'd create this little sanctuary area where there's where no fishing would be allowed, and it would it would be a place where the vaquita would wouldn't face that threat. And NRDC was involved um, in that in that effort. Um, and then I think people um, kind of wanted to wait out and see you know how that was going. There was part of that effort was a government buyback program, or I should say buyback a buyout program where the government basically would 
compensate fishermen who are getting rid of their gill nets and, and looking to transition to other gear. And so this was all kind of a, a program that was rolled out in the mid-2000s, developed, and NRDC was part of that. And then there was a, a bit of a, on NRDC side anyway, there was a bit of a, of a pause um, in our direct engagement. And then in 2014, when the population estimate um, came out um, that there were only 100 vaquita left, and that was the big, the big kind of trigger and they, had, they hadn't expected those numbers. They had expected a very different number. And at that point, the, yeah, this was in 2014, the people who had been you know, more day-to-day, month-to-month working on vaquita conservation did a population estimate, and the direction of the population um, was exactly not what they had expected. They, had, they thought that a lot of these efforts um, would, would bear fruit, and, and in reactuality, the result was quite the opposite, and they were very startled that the Vaquita population had dropped to around 100. And at that time, that's when they started making calls um, to the conservation community, saying, "Look, we really this is this is t- taking a turn, and we need to re-engage heavily on this issue." And that's when that's when I got involved in it. Bring us up to speed on, on, on the current situation because, I mean, you, you sort of brought us up to this point where, where you first got involved, which was a few years back when the most current population estimate was around 100. We're in a much more dire situation yeah. now, just a few years later. Right, absolutely. So so kind of triggered from that, that assessment that the population had dropped to 100 um, which is, and that they were declining at around, I think it was 18.5% decline rate per year. So with those numbers and, and a population of 100, if, if you don't reverse that, that trend, you're going to face extinction within a short period of time. And so there was a, there was a, a large push. Uh, there were a lot of um, the government of the United States was engaging with Mexico and, and there were talk of using various laws that were available to put economic pressures on the government of Mexico through um, embargoing some of their product. Um, and we could get into some of the specifics there, but but just as a general matter, that was one of the, the, the issues. And then the conservation community, at least some people within the conservation community, um, NRDC was one of them, kind of posed a question in, in 2015 at the Boston Seafood Show that was taking place there. Um, we had some billboards and met with some of the um, shrimp fisheries, um, Mexican shrimp fishery uh, um, representatives, and really posed the question of it, it may be time to consider a shrimp boycott um, because it didn't seem that Mexico's steps were working. The facts that were coming out is that, you know, some anecdotal evidence that, you know, people had taken the money for this uh, effort and actually had gone out and bought, um, instead of, you know, investing in, in learning how to use the alternative gear, had actually just kind of waited out and, and taken the money and, and used it to buy, you know, buy a better boat so they could continue shrimping the old, the, in, in the way they always had or, or, or you know, buy a new truck um, and, and whatnot. So that it, it wasn't that the system... The, the program that Mexico had put in place to transition people away from the destructive shrimping techniques just wasn't um, working. And then on top of that was the Totuaba trade. So this is what else gets us to where we are. Is it around 2010, you see a spike um, in the decline rate for vaquita that people would believe uh, is related to an illegal trade in a fish called the Totuaba. And it's the Totuaba swim bladder that is coveted in certain southeastern areas of China um, in fish maw soup. So this is the maw, the swim bladder of this fish, Totuaba. 2010 is an important um, date because it's around the time that the local uh, Chinese uh, fish called the Bahaba, which is also a croaker fish that has this swim bladder, um, uh, had really gone the way of um, almost extinction. It was very hard to find Bahaba anymore. And so um, tastes turned to a substitute, and the substitute that was found for this fish maw uh, was the swim bladder of the Totuaba, which itself is also an endangered species, but there are more of them than Bahaba, and they're only found in the upper Gulf of California. So there was this demand 
um, prices for Totoaba swim bladder um, got very high and people were out illegally fishing and there was no controls in place. Mexico was doing a very poor job and continues to do a very poor job on enforcement on the water. And so this kind of confluence of a failure to for the shrimp fisheries to really transition over the illegal totuaba, the takeoff of an illegal totuaba fishery in the upper Gulf of California. These things, you know, continue to tunnel towards or, or merge and create just a horrible situation for the vaquita who are getting caught in these nets, either for the shrimp or for the totuaba. So we set out to, you know, kind of say, look, look, maybe we should, you're not taking this seriously, maybe we should uh, do a boycott. In response to those kinds of threats and also noises that the United States government was making at the time about potential embargo, the Mexican government announced a two-year ban on the use of gillnets in the Vaquita range. And so this was a larger area than the Vaquita refuge that had been identified before. It was an area that covered, that captured the entire Vaquita range, and it banned the use of gillnets. And for that two-year period, shrimp fishermen would be fully compensated um, through that program um, to not shrimp, and that this was the two-year period that they would transition and that they would take that time. That was the intent to transition to the alternative gear. And so that at the end of the two years, um, there would be no gillnets uh, used anymore. Um, and that happened in 2015. There was also quite a bit of fanfare. President Peña Nieto actually came up to the region uh, introducing this plan they uh, had additional enforcement uh, uh, ships for Profepa, which is the enforcement arm of the Mexican equivalent of the EPA. Um, and also, um, there was, you know, they said the Navy would come into the area to help crack down on the Totuaba trade. So there was a lot of noise and, and movement on the part of the government of Mexico in 2015 to suggest that they were finally getting more serious about saving the vaquita with their numbers only being at around 100. Um, unfortunately, now we are two years later from that time when that uh, temporary ban was put in place, and the vaquita's number has dropped to 30. The Mexican government's plan has been an abject failure. Uh, they have failed to uh, stop the decline of the vaquita. Gillnets are found um, throughout vaquita habitat. It doesn't take much to just drop a drop some kind of trawl in the water searching for gillnets and and pull along and you will you will catch gillnets. They are just rampant um, in the area, um, even in areas where they clear out gillnets. If you go back weeks, months later, the, yeah, those areas are once again filled um, with gillnets um, to catch totoaba, but also um, to some of them are for shrimping. So it's a situation that gotten had gotten so bad and the number of Vaquita then um, dropping to 30 um, as of November 2016, that we felt that we really had no choice, that we had we had tried the Mexican government's way. And, you know, we heard through different people at different times that the only way that you were really going to get a shift in, in prioritization and effort in Mexico was to put some economic pressure um, on, on a powerful um, fishery. And the, the shrimp fishery is um, certainly responsible in part for where the vaquita are today, um, even if they're not the main driver anymore for their decline, if all of that is totoaba related. Um, it's the shrimp fishery that put them in a, in a precarious position to start with, kind of bringing them to the cliffside. And now they've thrown up their hands and said, why are you targeting us? We're not the problem. You know, we just brought the vaquita to the cliff. But we're not the ones actually trying to shove them over the edge. Um, is not, in my mind, a, a very productive way to to kind of clean up your own mess. So um, that's why uh, we took the step. We can no longer wait. We can't uh, rely upon Mexican government promises anymore. And that's why our ask um, in the boycott is, you know, demonstrable evidence that the gillnets are not in the water. That when you go out there and you look for gillnets in vaquita habitat, that you won't find any. And until that happens, we can't let up. Hey, Zach, this is Sean. I'm really happy that you painted this extended timeline to kind of show the sequence of events as, as they've rolled out. 
obviously it just gets darker and darker the, the, the more the timeline progresses. I, I'd like to kind of jump back, kind of diving into some of those specifics through in that timeline. When you said that there was a, uh, a what a sustainable seafood um, event in Boston? In Boston, they host every couple of years the North American Seafood Expo. They, they might do it. They might do it every year. Um, so the North American Seafood Expo in 2015, um, we had gone to. Um, I actually, I wasn't there, but our coalition was there. We helped fund some of the materials. And that's where we kind of signaled and kind of posed the question. It was very much just to pose a question. Is it time to boycott Mexican shrimp? Um, and, you know, the idea with, you know, there's only 100 vaquita left. You know, what, what, what is going to make what is going to make the Mexican government and, and the fisheries pay attention to this? And so, so, ask, so who exactly would you be posing this question to? Like, are these the Mexican shrimp fisheries that are attending this, this conference? Yeah. So, you know, the, our message there was, you know, to the shrimp fisheries, the Mexican shrimp fisheries. And at the time, there was no gillnet ban um, on, on, the, on the shrimp fisheries in that region. And so they were still gillnetting. And even though the totoaba was the number one you know, threat, um, the keto were still being caught um, potentially in, in shrimp fisheries. So the use of gillnets there was still a problem. So we were targeting you know, we posed the question to the shrimp fisheries representatives from the those areas of Mexico that that those companies that that do shrimp fishing and buy shrimp from that area in Mexico. And then also, you know, the pe- the question was relayed in different ways to the Mexican government, and it really was um, along with. I don't want to take. I don't want to suggest that that in and of itself is instrumental. I mean, there was a lot of pressure going on from other organizations who who weren't necessarily posing that question, but also mm-hmm. saying, look, we have to take this serious, like WWF, who does a lot of work on the ground um, in this region in Mexico, or was until, until um, there were threats of violence against their employees. But um, And also through the U.S. government's pressure um, under the Marine Mammal Protection Act, there are options for them to to bar the entry of certain goods from Mexico that harm that harm marine mammals like the vaquita in violation of U.S. standards. So, you know, I'm curious what the response would be when posing a question um, as far as implementing a boycott when you're when you're actually talking to a Mexican shrimp fishery. You know, somebody who operates that, and that's essentially like how they generate a revenue. What sort of response do you get? From someone like that, I don't imagine they're too excited about even having this conversation. There's a there's kind of a standard response, which is we're not part of this problem. That this is a Totoaba issue, that this is really a government enforcement issue. If the government was out there and catching the illegal fishery, the people engaged in the illegal fishery, you know, we wouldn't have this problem. And some of the responses, uh, you know, the transitional gear that has been worked out is not as effective as gillnets, so. We have to have a program of compensation. I mean, things, you know, kind of comebacks that aren't really controllable by, of course, the NGO community, but kind of the excuses from the shrimp fishery. Um, and those have just gotten more pronounced uh, because with this gillnet ban over the last two years, they have a greater basis to say, look, we're not the ones anymore who are driving the vaquita to extinction. It's not us. So this is the failure of the Mexican government to enforce um, and so you're targeting the wrong people by going after the shrimp fishery. So that's, you know, that's the response. I think that we're totally aware of all of those arguments. Um, we don't reject them factually, but that's not really the point of, of the boycott. So, I mean, what is the point of the boycott, right? Like how, how would you respond? Because I mean, there, there is a valid point within that perspective, right? I mean, especially now because... Uh, over the past two years, there has been a ban on gillnets, and you know, even though that ban has failed on many, many levels in preventing folks from going out and fishing for tatuaba illegally, um, it has succeeded in preventing people from going out and fishing shrimp with gillnets. You know, there there may be here and there small pockets of people who who are uh, continuing to to fish for shrimp with gillnets, but you know. All the reports that we've heard, you know, sort of state that there has been huge success in preventing fishermen from going out and fishing for shrimp with gillnets. So, I mean, like, how do you justify essentially putting an economic burden on all these 
fishermen uh, throughout Mexico who have no connection whatsoever to the vaquita. Um, in order, you know, like what, like what's the justification for, like, what's the potential benefit that comes out of this boycott? Right. So, um, a couple of responses. One is the the innocence of the shrimp fishery, at least the uh, of course, or not at least, but the the shrimp fishery of the upper Gulf is does not have clean hands in this situation, and 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 that's what I alluded to before. This idea that you know. If you bring a species to the edge of a cliff, but you're not the one that's pushing them over the edge, it doesn't mean that you don't have a responsibility to do more. And that responsibility to do more is just not necessarily just stopping. I mean, in theory, it would be to bring them back to the recovery where they were before you started the bad acts. When we have laws in the United States that that I kind of analogized to in my head, you know, you can't dump pollution, um, you know, toxic waste, you know, in your back, you know, in the back courtyard of your factory. Um, for 20 years, uh, stop the practice, bury it, sell your factory. And then 50 years later, when someone finds the toxic waste that's now leached into the drinking water, say, hey, that's not my fault, you know, or that was a long time ago. Um, it's the new owners. I mean, the, the way our laws work is that those people are on the hook as well. I mean, if you contributed to the, the mess, you need to clean it up. And so I think that this idea that that there's no, there's nothing that can be done by this industry, or that they don't have any obligation, kind of falls flat with me. Now, with respect to shrimp fishery, um, people who work entirely in another part of Mexico that really were never ever a part of this. So you can think of all the Gulf of Mexico shrimp fishermen, for example, versus the Gulf of California shrimp fisheries. Um, the the answer there is um, we don't want this boycott to last long. Um, the only way to get the Mexican government to take this seriously is if they receive the pressure to do so. And, you know, we can work together by putting the pressure on the Mexican government to solve this problem. And then this really won't be, you know, the kind of um, economic dislocation that it potentially could be for those fisheries if they turn to their government and say, it's not even that they're asking the government to do something new. It's just enforce your own rules and regulations and laws in the upper Gulf and enforce them strongly, and then this will go away. And so, um, yes, we're using a, a shrimpery as a particular tool, um, and that captures, it's a blunt tool. There's no, there's no, I'm not gonna argue that a boycott is not a blunt tool that captures some parties that aren't as culpable or aren't as culpable at all. Um, but it's one of the only tools that we have left, and when there's 30 vaquita left um, in the world, and probably maybe a little less now. We have to take this kind of drastic measure. We didn't, you know, we didn't, we didn't enter into it without giving it a lot of thought. Um, and also, part of the answer also is it's very difficult if you're going to have an effective boycott if that's the tool that you you're going to use. And and seeing as we had tried all the other tools and and they didn't really get anywhere. Um, if it's very difficult for for U.S. consumers to say just don't buy shrimp from the upper Gulf of California. Um, it's impossible for U.S. consumers to actually have that information available to them. Pack, the packaging that we have nowadays and the kind of reporting requirements on, on the food that we consume doesn't require that kind of specificity. I'm not sure if it should or shouldn't. I don't, I, well, I do have opinions about that, but they're not really relevant here. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that all, all that a package of frozen shrimp says is product of Mexico, product of Vietnam, product of USA. It doesn't say in the upper Gulf, and is harmful to vaquita. <laughs> like, right. So there's no, there's no way to target. If you're going to target, you know, if you want to target the, the, the truly responsible shrimp fishery, you end up capturing the larger shrimp fishery. And frankly, capturing the larger shrimp fishery, the economic potential of that should bring the government to the table quicker. Um, because it, it seems clear to me that they've, that, that they're willing to let the upper Gulf shrimp fisheries and those fisheries languish um, as long as everything else is going okay in their fisheries. I mean, it's been poorly, horribly poorly managed fisheries by the government of Mexico for, for years. And um, so just threatening that particular fishery or just those communities um, with a boycott uh, probably wouldn't get the attention of the government of Mexico the way that, that their attention needs to be grabbed. Apart from just having the government directly just react to the boycott, so that it's not it's not a boycott that lasts forever, as you say, um, what 
what solutions or what should the government should be following up with that reaction? Yeah, like what are the conditions? Like at, at what point do you say, okay, Mexican government, like you have – you've done the right thing and now we're going to pull back on the boycott? Right. So there's kind of two issues there. One is what are the conditions for the boycott um, ending? And there we really have been clear that we don't want to micromanage that. But what has the but what has to happen is that there can't be gill nets in the water. So if I go out in the Kita habitat or an independent monitor, more <laughs> which would be better than me because I wouldn't know what I'm doing, but an independent monitor would go out and what they're doing right now, for example, Sea Shepherd and the government of Mexico itself is, I think there are some efforts to um, that they're going out and retrieving some ghost nets, they're kind of getting nets out of the water. But in that process, they're also finding active nets. Right. And in a very small area, like they're not, you know, this isn't like, oh, we dragged the entire upper growth and we came up with like two, three nets. No, they're, they're doing slivers of these areas and they're coming up with hundreds of nets that have been set. And many of them, more than half, are active. So it's not, it's not just that this is an old problem, like of the ghost nets or, or abandoned gear. So, um, so what needs to happen is that you know, some kind of uh, independently monitoring or independent um, verification system, which can include government officials. It doesn't have to be entirely independent, but there has to, we have to have some trust in it. And frankly, the level of trust with the Mexican government is, is, is dropped sharply so that um, it really does require that um, some kind of independent verification that people out on the water who are looking for gill nets and doing this kind of drag Aren't, aren't finding them or are finding them in such numbers that it truly demonstrates that this habitat is safe for the vaquita. How you get there, what the different, you know, how you, how you build that result um, isn't necessarily for me to say. I mean, I've said, look, people will talk about a lot of different things like, oh, well, you have to have more arrests. You have to have stronger penalties. You have to have more prosecutions. If there were no gill nets in the water and no arrests, I wouldn't care. Or if there were no gill nets in the water and there were hundreds of arrests and prosecutions and that's what got it there, that would be the result that was necessary too, potentially. So um, that's kind of this. Um, and, and does it have to be the government of Mexico? No. Why can't a co-op? Why can't a co-op of Mexican shrimp fisheries from around the entire country fund local fishermen to go and take gill nets out of the water? They could do that. Um, so there's a lot of different um, ways in which you achieve the result of of really cleaning up Fakita's wild habitat. Um, but that's what has to happen in order for the boycott to be lifted. Now, the other question of, but what about those communities and the livelihoods? And they really do have a problem potentially with transitioning. It's first, first, it's not clear that that transition is ever... Um, been given a fair shake. The first year that the shrimp fishery was operating under the gillnet ban, CONAPESCA, the National Commission on Aquaculture, uh, Mexican National Commission on Aquaculture and Fisheries, didn't issue a permit to use the alternative gear during the entire shrimp season. Even though this was the time period, this two years was the time period when they were supposed to be testing that gear. So, um, which I think also demonstrates an attitude from the Mexican government, at least from Conapesca, about a disinterest in actually solving this problem. I mean, they had alternative gear ready and waiting, but people couldn't use it if they didn't have a permit to use it. So um, that's a problem if you don't issue the permits. And their excuse was, you know, it was, I mean, it was really like kind of this ludicrous, you know, like, oh, well, uh, so-and-so is out of the office today and they're the only one who has the stamp. And so, um, you know, so sorry. I mean, it was, I mean, it was, this was not an agency that was interested in issuing those permits. Um, and this was, has never been an agency, Conopesca, who's been interested in this issue. If I was just looking at the evidence and drawing a conclusion, the conclusion I would draw, at least on the part of Conopesca, is they have an interest in the Bikita going, ex going extinct as soon as possible. Because then they can get back to their real interest, which is fishing with abandon, using whatever gear and techniques that they want. That's what the evidence shows me. That's not true of the entire Mexican government, but that's certainly what you can see from Conopesca. So it's, it's not clear to me that alternative gear has ever been given a fair shake 
Um, I have heard that it's less. It certainly is. Uh, per effort, there's less return. So you're not you're not pulling as much shrimp out of the water for the same kind of effort right. of going out and spending the time there. There's a lot of things that have been proposed that have, again, on the Mexican government side, have never been really adequately embraced or sussed out. For example, there are um, more than one importers in the U.S. side. Santa Monica Seafood is one of them, who has said in letters, we will pay a premium for Vaquita safe uh, shrimp. You know, we will, and that, you know, we, we will pay a premium for that. And all of those efforts on the U.S. side to kind of create, you know, whether it be a label or some kind of, of, of marketing plan for Vaquita friendly product has really fallen on deaf ears. I mean, there have been some co-ops that have been interested in it and have kind of um, gone down that path, but it's never been embraced wholeheartedly on the Mexican government side, in part, you know, because I don't think Kona Pesca has ever really been interested in, in, in pursuing that. So there are ways to deal with the lack of the lack of return for effort for the fishermen. I don't think we're blind to that issue. No one says that this gear is an re- exact replacement for effort and return that you would get from gill nets. But the one way to deal with that is to do premium um, support. And we have... Um, industry, we have companies in the United States who are interested in paying that premium. The sort of reasoning behind why these efforts have failed are complex, right? But on the most basic level, right? I mean, like you said, you have to expend more effort in order to you know, get an equivalent harvest using these alternative methods, which means it costs more. However, like that could be offset and it could be a sustainable alternative um, for the fishermen in this region, if there was a higher price um, being offered for that product, given the fact that it's vaquita friendly, right? So, I mean, my question for you is, and, and obviously, like both of us know that that those efforts to get a program like that up off the ground have have largely failed, right? Um, but I mean, I guess my question for you is, like, doesn't this this boycott that's uh, uh, going on currently, like, doesn't this work against these efforts? by encouraging people not to buy any shrimp from Mexico, even if it is sustainably harvested? Right. So the answer to that is we're talking about two different time frames. We're talking about a short-term time. I mean, the vaquita are going to be extinct by 2020 at the current rate of decline. They will be absolutely extinct by 2020 if the decline rate continues as what it is right now. I mean, it was pretty much 50% in a year. So every year, a vaquita that's swimming around you know, having a, having a nice old time in the wild, you know, in that year has a 50 for 50% chance of dying. Um, you know, that's a flip of the, that's the flip of the coin, right? So, um, that's the status of the vaquita and that in the short term has to be turned around. And that's the issue of getting gill nets completely and totally out of water. That's a, the issue of a potentially a strong enforcement regime or something, something, you know, really turning within the Mexican government or people, other people in power who have the resources to get gill nets out of the water and saying this has to happen. The long-term issue of how do we support communities that are taking these steps and are suffering themselves through, um, you know, revenue declines, how do we support those communities to transition? I see that as a longer-term Issue. So the, I see the boycott operating in the short term and then that we pick up once everyone really accepts the fact that there are, can be no more gill nets used in the upper Gulf. I trust people to transition and to find ways to support. And there are look, there's so many groups that have been engaged with this as far as as foundations. I mean, not just the government of Mexico who spent millions of dollars compensating fishermen. Um, in those regions, corruptly, of course, because at the end of the day, they were giving compensation payments to people who own permits who aren't even operating as fishermen in the area anymore, maybe not even live in the area, and they're collecting a check. I mean, it was just, it's ludicrous. So, um, and I know that that's the whole issue of, like, the people suffer because the government's ridiculous or, you know, the government is ineffective. And yes, that's a problem. Um, It's a problem everywhere, right? But I see that as the long-term solution, and we've talked about it within the boycott of how do we turn this around. Our organizations aren't going to walk away 
Because even if you get all gillnets out of the water tomorrow or by the end of this year, the vaquita will still be at, the, at, you know, whatever the number will be at that point, 20. And that's too small of a number to just say, oh, problem solved. If gillnets are out of the water, it's okay, we've stabilized the population. How do we long-term make this work? And I've been thinking about it in a lot of different ways. I mean, we've been talking about it. It, it doesn't even have to be the shrimp fisheries. Why not? If It could be any industry that operates in that area could, could market itself, and I would be happy to promote them as a vaquita-friendly you know, industry. If there, was, if there was some kind of economic opportunity there that created 10 jobs and those jobs you know, came or just created 10 jobs. They don't have to come from the fishing industry. It could just be the creation of 10 jobs. You know, if they're not, if those jobs aren't putting gillnets in the water and that's in San Felipe or it's in El Golfo de Santa Clara, to me, that's a vaquita safe industry. So there, there's an opportunity here I see even beyond fisheries to, to market yourself. Say you had solar arrays in that area and you were trying to decide, gee, who should I buy this electricity from? The vaquita-friendly solar, you know, company that's helping that that community versus the other one, and maybe the electricity prices is the same at both. Why not choose the vaquita-friendly one? So, I mean, there's a lot of ways that I think the communities can do a different different way. That's not my expertise, um, but it's something that I would, I know that we would be happy to support. Our coalition wants this to work, and the only way it's going to work in the long term is to address the issues that that you've raised. What needs to happen now, because the clock is ticking, um, in order for this boycott to really sink its teeth in and to be effective? What are the ideal circumstances or what actually, what elements need to be in place in order for this thing to stick? Unfortunately, you know, time is not our friend in, in, this, in this situation. Um, it, it, it would have been five years ago, it would have been 10 years ago that we would have had some of these, these luxuries. And, you know, people have talked about, you know, like, oh, well, you know, the real issue is Totoaba and you should be fighting, you know, for demand reduction in China. Great. That's a great idea. First of all, we're doing it. Um, secondly, um, I mean, my organization, you know, we, I was over there in December with, with the government officials at a big enforcement workshop against, you know, the Tatuaba trade in, in southern China. So great, we're doing it. The idea that that's going to trickle through market mechanisms in enough time to save the vaquita is, is it, that's fantasy. That's, that's, so that's not the answer. The answer isn't, um, and it doesn't mean that we don't, because this is a long-term, you know, because you have to focus on the long-term as well as the short-term, it's not that you can ignore China. That work still has to continue. But the immediate thing that needs to take place is better enforcement. That's that's really what has to happen. And and I'll, and frankly, when we met with government officials um, at the North American Seafood Expo, I was not particularly thrilled by the answers of, look, this is what we've done. This is what we're doing. And what more could you possibly ask of us? Um, I mean, that was, they didn't use that exact phrase, but that was the gist of it. It was, they were standing by, um, you know, the good work that they had already achieved, which was, it, it, it just flies, of course, in the face of reality based upon, you know, your experience of what you see down there in the water. Um, and it also is just entirely insufficient. Now, of course, they're posturing and, and this and that, but what has to happen is that there has to be a much greater enforcement effort you know, on the water that has to, that has to be happening. Money has to be poured into pulling gillnets out of the water. And there are ways to do that, to engage the community so that the money that goes to the community, you know, have, have, have the fishermen who are using gillnets right now, go out and pull gillnets out of the water and, and, and protect them because they might be threatened given the lucrative nature of the Totoaba trade. I mean, that, that's, that's why I get back to this. I don't, I feel uncomfortable outlining an exact step-by-step, this, must, this, then this, then this, mm-hmm. you know, uncorruptible judges, uh, rotate Navy personnel every three months because they'll get captured by the Totoaba cartels um, if they stay too long. I mean, I don't want to get into those details because mm-hmm. I don't know the circumstances on the ground um, enough to start to have that prescription. The only thing that I can say is gillnets have to be out of the water. To me, that seems that you have to enforce the rules and regulations that are in place, and you have to, you know, triple, double, quadruple the effort if what you have right now isn't working. And and you have to stop these stupid stories of, oh, the Profepa ships, you know, the Profepa boats 
uh, ran out of gasoline or the gasoline cards that they have from the government to get free gasoline uh, don't work because the government was so ridiculous that it didn't realize that, you know, that there are no chevrons in that region of Mexico. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I mean, it wasn't Chevron. It was a Mexican government, you know, Mexican, you know, uh, uh, oil company, you know, or, or gasoline company. But that was, I mean, they gave, that was part of one of the excuses, you know, that we heard, not from the government officials, but like the kind of ridiculousness of this, which just goes back to suggest that there isn't a, there isn't a really strong concerted effort and a plan to make this work. Yeah, it's funny. We, we we heard the same stories, and when we started the project back in 2015, when the Gillnet Band was there, I mean, that's one of the things I witnessed was that a lot of those boats they left they never left the marina, um, and I didn't right. really quite understand that. And that's when the story those stories came out. Um, so one of the things that is is really going to compound the issue now is that you know you just launched this boycott campaign. Um, and it's also, we're coming to the end of the two year Gilnet ban, which is supposed to end at the, I believe the end of May. And there's been a lot of back and forth that it's going to be permanent and, and whatnot, and which is sending a lot of confusion. Um, but it obviously the Gilnet ban, as you know, has not assisted positively, um, in, in preventing illegal fishing. So it's, I just feel like the Gilnet ban, it's almost moot. But knowing that it's on the edge, because a lot of fishermen, since they're fighting uh, for that to end, so they can just go back to business as usual, um, how you know what, does this look like an obstacle for a boycott like this? Because there's so many people that are ready or with the idea that it's going to end, and they're just going to be able to continue with their daily lives, and everything else is just going to f- fall to the wayside. You're exactly right. The existence, you know, on paper as of a permanent gillnet ban, and as we've seen even, you know, for the last, the, the temporary two-year ban, it is meaningless if it doesn't come with, um, come with effective enforcement. And so, um, but what it is, is it's a signal. Mm-hmm. And it's a signal to the environmental and conservation community that you're taking this issue seriously and that you understand what is necessary um, so that's a signal. And it's also a signal to people who are planning their futures and their livelihoods as to whether or not they're going to ever be able to continue to use gillnets. And so um, I think that those, so in that sense, they're important in the short term. Again, you know, that's important for the long term survival of Akita. in the short term. I, you know, I throw that use that paper to to beat people over the head when you catch them, you know, you, you know using Totuaba. Uh, you know, out to Totuaba fishing. Like, to me, that that paper is meaningless um, in the context of whether or not that there's enforcement taking place on the water and you're actually putting an end and getting gillnets out of the water. I don't, again, that goes to the whole thing of, like, if the Mexican government said, we don't even need this piece of paper because, you know, whatever, we just need to enforce our rules and laws and we're going to do it. If they did it, then there wouldn't be, um, you know, there wouldn't be an issue. It doesn't really matter what the paper says. But this goes to the whole issue of seriousness, and it, it goes to signals. Not including the Corvina fishery, for example, right. um, in the gillnet ban is a signal from the government that they're not really willing to take the hard steps necessary to save the vaquita. Um, and so, so just so people know, like, so that's this. Even the two-year ban on gillnets only applied to certain fisheries, mostly to the shrimp fisheries, and it didn't apply to the uh, another fishery that only operates for a small part of the year, the Corvina fishery. Um, the Corvina fishery, though, ended up being a foil for the Totuaba fishery because it made enforcement more difficult. So I know you guys are aware of that, but I just thought that I'd explain it. That's why. That's why. And and so what? Another way that we are, you know, sending these signals of this is a permanent. This is a, this is a permanent shift. So NRDC is helping um, sponsor a bill in the California legislature to prohibit the or to make it unlawful to sell, distribute, um, offer for sale, trade um, fish or fish products that were caught using gillnets in the Vaquitas range um, in California. And it's out of the first committee, the Committee on Water Parks and Wildlife um, in the Assembly, and it's, it's going to move onward, and it's got a lot of support. And that's the kind of thing that has to be signaled that there's no going back to gillnets, um, in this region, the future is, um, you know, we'll take your product. We love your product. 
people love shrimp from Mexico, um, but it has to be gillnet free. And and yet you still see the Corvina fishery, you know, in up in the legislature or their allies, you know, trying to carve out an exemption for that fishery. And this is this is an that's the issue of people aren't taking the the, the serious steps, even though that fishery this year has been offered compensation mm-hmm. for not fishing. I mean, how exactly can you trace the fact that it's that that seafood was caught with a gillnet? I mean, that's one of the biggest things. And like just trying to come up with traceable or responsibly sourced seafood is, you know, just because it has the seal. How do you how do you draw that thread from point A to point B and then convince the consumer or the, you know, the buyer um, or the distributor like that? That's real. I mean, especially with all the corruption that's been coming out of Mexico already. I mean, that's, that's a really tough cookie. This is another long-term, short-term answer. In the long term, the United States federal government has put in place um, traceability rules that they're rolling out. Um, The first phase of them are going to be required in 2018. Um, They're targeted at 10 priority species. Um, One of them is shrimp, although actually it's not going to apply to shrimp because the U.S. has to get its own shrimp fishery (laughs) in order before it starts asking other countries to get their shrimp fisheries in order. But the the long-term trajectory of what's going on in the world and what's going on with this rule that the United States has put in place and is going to start implementing in 2018 is more and more and, and more and more fisheries will be added to it over time until there's full coverage but that's going to be you know cradle to grave it will it the information that will be provided at the time of importation will be exactly where it came from where the product was fished and the gear type used um, to do it now of course there's corruption issues um that is just a long-term enforcement mechanisms that have to be put in place. But the idea that even people will have that information or importers will have that information will be really beneficial. Um, and look, it's a competitive business. And you probably could see some, competi- some competitors who are saying, look, you want to buy my shrimp because here's the verification that what I'm reporting to the U.S. government is true. And of course, I also wouldn't recommend that people lie on their um, export documentation <laughs> because the penalties in the United States are, are pretty are not are, are not something to be sneezed at. So I think there will be a lot of incentives once that traceability program is in place to um, get a high level of compliance with it. But that's the long term. That's yeah. the trajectory of what's going to happen with fisheries around the world. The EU has traceability standards too that they're instituting. So, but until we get there, short term, and for this specific law. Um, what can the Fish and Wildlife Department do to enforce it if they can't rely yet on the federal system? What they can do is a lot of it's going to have to be about, around education of the of the importers. Um, for example, Corvina would be a perfect example. If you're importing Corvina from the Upper Gulf, and these you know these people, and that's part of their argument is like we know these communities, we work with them. You know, in opposition to the bill, they're making a lot of pro- they're making a lot of assertions about how they know these communities and they work with these fishermen. And they know how much um, effort they've put in to making their fisheries sustainable. So, importers have already been incentivized through the market system to to really have those kind of relationships and know their suppliers so that they can make representations about their product to U.S. consumers. And so, they have those relationships. They know it. And what we would do in an education is, well, you'd know if there was Corvina trying to come into California or be sold in California that was from that area of the upper Gulf until there are permits issued for alternative gear or line and hook, you'd know by definition that it was caught with gillnets because that's the only game in town. So that would be an easy one, right? So Corvina from upper Gulf, if it's appearing in California, it would have been caught with a gillnet if the government of Mexico doesn't have a gillnet ban on the Corvina fishery, because there's no other option for fishing. You have, you know, there's no other permits that are out there for other types of fishing of Corvina. So if it's a, if it's a legal product to start with, it would have been legally been caught with a gillnet. So that's the kind of education you can do. Like those are easy ones that the fish and wildlife can have an awareness of, but I don't, you know, there's no DNA test you can do that's going to tell you where it came from and how it was caught. So it's going to have to be done through an education, and it's going to have to be done through NGOs collecting information, supplying it to Fish and Wildlife Service, and hoping that they, you know, and, and, and or not hoping, but encouraging them to do enforcement action against certain importers who move forward. And if we hear about them not um, not complying with the law, 
is there still a sense of hope within your organization and then you yourself and your uh, your affiliates? I don't think that you can be in the conservation business or the environmental business and not uh, fundamentally be a hopeful person. <laughs> um, given given yeah, uh, I mean, I guess you could you could also be a pessimistic person um, and just deciding to die on the sword. Um, but um, no, I, I do have hope. I'm not. It's not an unrealistic hope. It it is an understanding that all of the different things that are that are being planned and all of the different steps that have to take place to save the vaquita, they all have to work. You know, it's like they all, all of the engines have to fire and they all have to be successful. What's the likelihood of that happening? Um, I wouldn't say it's a very high likelihood that, that that will take place. And, and maybe there's room, maybe there is margin for, for to pick up some of the slack. If one, uh, area, you know, it, it turns out to be more robust, like enforcement um, versus um, prosecutions or arrests or, or you know, alternative gear development. Um, or even, you know, the California bill gets a carve out for Curvina, which I don't expect to happen. But, you know, there, there are different things that, um, like I said, it's like a puzzle. All the pieces kind of have to fit together and they all have to work. And the only thing I can say is I know it's doable. Um, it's just the question of whether or not we do it. That's why we ask people to boycott shrimp from Mexico to say, look, we know this is doable. We know this is tough. You've got to, you've got to take these hard, you know, you have to make these hard choices. You have to pour out all of this effort or we're going to lose this species. So I don't know how to answer the question. Cause I, you know, I, I want to be realistic I don't think anyone is unrealistic. I don't think anyone believes it's not an incredibly uphill battle. Um, and we don't know what's going to happen with, happen with the capture effort. Right. It could be incredibly successful. Um, and that would buy us more time. That's, that's the whole point of the capture effort. Um, capture effort's not supposed to be some substitute. Um, and so, and again, so, you know, there's an awareness. There's, there's a plan that in the fall of this year, late summer, early fall, people will you know, construct at sea pens and actually go out and capture some vaquita to remove them from their toxic environment and put them in, in a safe environment until we can clean up and give us more time to get gillnets out of the, out of their wild habitat. So, um, even now that it, that, that is one of the elements that has to work. I'm not super excited about the idea of capturing wild animals to start with, but if that's, what's necessary to buy us time, and that's what the scientists have concluded is necessary, then that's another one of the things, like, that's got to work. You know, that has to be successful. They have to get a good number of vaquita safely out of the wild and in a protected environment. I don't know. What do you guys think? I'll turn it back on you. Uh, no, I mean, we're, I think we're definitely in the same boat as you. It's like, we're, we're cer- we certainly have not given up hope, but we're definitely at a point where it feels like the likelihood of success is pretty low. But, you know, you could you can point to, to numerous other conservation efforts that have gotten to extremely dire uh, points, uh, uh, points where, you know, a, a lot of folks gave up hope um, and ultimately they were successful because all the pieces in that jigsaw puzzle did come together, you know. So I, I think we definitely sort of share your your feelings <laughs> yeah. in, in regard to that question. Um, you know, I, I think the final the final thing that we should just touch on um, before we wrap this up is, you know, one of the biggest struggles that we've had uh, in working on our film project about the vaquita is, you know, what what do we tell people, people who, uh, especially people in the U.S. who want to um, help out with this conservation effort for the vaquita and, and play some role in this? Mm-hmm. Like, what do you tell them to do, right? And um, this this boycott campaign that that you and, and, and RDC uh, and, and these other partners are running is um, it's, it's a good thing to point to of like it's it's a tangible way for folks to participate in, in this conservation effort. So, I mean, maybe you can just give us sort of the rundown of like what you're asking seafood consumers in the U.S. to do. Right. Absolutely. So so our our boycott of Mexican shrimp, which um, you can find out everything you need to know at um, boycottmexicanshrimp.com. And we have a dedicated website and it offers tools there um, for people, um, in addition to taking a pledge that they will not um, purchase shrimp from Mexico, 
um, until you know the boycott is lifted. Um, it also provides opportunities to, to to reinforce that message by sending letters to the relevant government, Mexican government officials, to say, you know, I'm I'm taking part in this. So that's not just so that's that's an additional way of of people to get involved, and we we provide that um, information. And we also have links to um, wholesalers, retailers, um, buyers in the United States who we have contacted and asked them to join our our effort and to stop making purchases in the future, not current purchases, um, but um, future purchasing decisions to, to choose something other than Mexican shrimp. And we're encouraging, um, and that's another thing that people can do. Um, they can go to the website and they can learn who those um, buyers, wholesalers, retailers are. And there's links to many of them um, have links to their own uh, websites for providing comment and to say, I really urge you to join this effort to save the vaquita. So that could be, you know, a company like Trader Joe's, for example, that offers shrimp from Mexico um, in its stores and has not yet um, has not yet said that they would join our campaign. What they said is, we will respond to our consumers. Um, we believe in a democratic. I don't know, it was some phrase they use, like a democratic marketplace. Um, the democratic market. And, and to me, I was like, great, that sounds like an invitation for me to convince your consumers not to buy, <laughs> you know, your Mexican shrimp um, to give you the signal that maybe you shouldn't um, source uh, your shrimp from there going forward. So, um, and that's an opportunity. There are links to those, those company websites as well that we provide all at um, boycottmexicanshrimp.com. Uh, I think in the future, there's going to be additional things um, that, uh, kind of like wait, just stay tuned, because this administration at some point is going to have to make a decision on a Pelly petition, which is uh, uh, we start going down the rabbit hole of, of, of laws and, and acronyms and the names of, you know, long dead senators. But the, the, the point of this uh, petition is, is that the, the, the U.S. government, the president of the United States can certify a country for violating certain international laws when it comes to wildlife trade. And in this one, um, certainly Mexico has been undermining the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species by its failure to get its get a handle on the Totoaba situation. And if the government, if the president of the U.S. certified Mexico for that situation, then sanctions could be placed on certain wildlife products coming into the United States. So there may be efforts that, you know, as we get closer to the decision moments for that, for people to write, you know, to um, write to the president, write to the administration, uh, write to Congress people saying, you know, I, I urge you to support this effort. Fantastic. Well, we will definitely be keeping our listeners engaged in this as best we can and, and updated uh, as these uh, additional opportunities to get involved come forth. And I'll just say thank you to, to you, Zach, for, um, for coming on the show, but also for all of the work you've put into this, this campaign um, and for your passion for this issue and, and conservation in general. Yeah, thank you, Zach. Well, really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show and expressing uh, your, your mission and your effort, really. Well, and absolutely, and thank you all for amplifying the issue. The work that you're doing on the film and highlighting this issue as well. I mean, this is, this is like I said, too, like, it takes all of these parts. You know, we're all playing that role. Um, there, are, there are NGOs that aren't joining our boycott publicly, um, although they, they privately support it. But it doesn't mean that they aren't still, you know, playing an active role. And, and using their pressure points, you know, no one has the, no one has the magic silver bullet that they're just, you know, they're just, you know, hiding away. Um, we all have a role to play, and, and thank you all for for doing that, to doing your part as well. It's really important. All right, that was our conversation with Zach Smith from the Natural Resources Defense Council. It's clear that Zach has a detailed understanding of the complexities behind this fight to save the vaquita from extinction. It's important that he recognizes that no single effort can save the species at this late stage. The conservation issues faced by the vaquita must be tackled from all angles if this unique porpoise has any hope of avoiding extinction. If you want to learn more about vaquita conservation and the NRDC's campaign to boycott Mexican shrimp, you can head over to the show notes page for this episode. You'll find those show notes at wildlensinc.org slash EOC121. You can also check out the website for our Vaquita documentary project, Souls of the Vermilion Sea, at vaquitafilm.com. If you haven't watched the brand new 30-minute film, be sure to give it a watch. It's available now for free online streaming. 
If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, you can subscribe to the show via iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are distributed. If you really want to help us out, you can leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. This really helps new people discover the show, which means more people learn about the plight of the vaquita. Just search for Eyes on Conservation in the iTunes store or follow the link on the show notes page. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of Wild Lens. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky, along with co-host Sean Bogle. Our theme music is by... The Humidors. <laughs>